Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I am Cameron Abadi, uh, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us uh, this week in where in Britain exactly? London. In London. Okay. Well, obviously, we thought there was a pretty obvious data point for us this week. That was uh, namely 2023, which is the year that is now coming to a close. That struck us as an opportunity to look back at the year as a whole from the perspective of economics or from the perspective of economics that we try to offer on this podcast, more specifically. And yeah, so we'll try to cover the big stories that happened this past year around the world. But first... Adam, I wanted to ask you about something that's kind of followed us throughout this entire podcast the past couple of years has been inflation. You have staunchly been a member of the team, I think, that you yourself dubbed as Team Transitory, arguing that inflation would be a temporary passing phenomenon that would more or less resolve itself largely on its own. And yeah, sure enough, we are at the end of 2023 in the United States. Inflation rates have now more or less come down to the level that they were before this entire inflation crisis started, or at least to the levels that the central banks have said they're ready to accept. So do you feel vindicated by how inflation has developed? And moreover, what sort of new economic knowledge have we gained as a result of this entire experience with inflation? Have the prevailing economic models about the trade-offs between inflation and unemployment, including the Keynesian models, I guess that, you know, you yourself may be inclined to cite, have they all kind of proved wrong or at least incomplete when it comes to this uh, experience with inflation? It is indeed a key question. I should, I think I should um, not claim credit for, for having um, given our team the name Team Chazantrichy. I'm, I'm sure the credit for that belongs to somebody else. But I have been, I have been I do feel vindicated in the sense that our leading opponents, let's call them Team Doom or Team Pain, have clearly been proven wrong. They've been proven wrong in the sense that they took the view that inflation could only be squeezed out of the economy with a huge surge in unemployment. And that was the, you know, the risk that we were running in advocating for fiscal stimulus in 2020, uh, 2020 21, 22. And this was highly irresponsible because it meant necessarily that uh, unemployment would have to go up in due course. You know, Larry Summers is closely identified with this position. I think that position has clearly been disproven. That's not what we've ended up with. Interpreting what we have ended up with is tricky. The actual outcome, which is a surge in inflation followed by a fall in inflation, not a fall in prices, but a fall in inflation back to relatively moderate rates, has not required a huge surge in unemployment. Unemployment has remained remarkably low. Labour market's tight. Unemployment's in the 3% range. This is, of course, fantastic news. So one shouldn't spend too much time arguing about who was right and wrong about it. It's just really good news. The team painers, the team doomers, rescue themselves by saying it was our Cassandra warnings that caused the central banks ultimately to stick interest rates up very severely. We've spoken about that many times on the show. And that's what caused inflation to come down. And so you team transitory people are really barking up the wrong tree because it isn't your deep insights into the economy that that helped us here. It was the fact that we sounded the alarm. Central banks ultimately too slowly reacted and inflation has come down. And, and yes, sure, there was no unemployment. But the more important thing is there should never have been any inflation 
which is going to be terrible politically uh, in the coming year, goes the argument. And there would not have been inflation if the central banks had acted quickly enough to raise interest rates. So that's how, as it were, Team Doom kind of rescues itself. Team Soft Landing will say, well, you know what? We actually just think central bank policy is brilliant. And so what we've done here is to steer the perfect line. Hardcore Team Transitory says, you guys are entirely arguing about the wrong issue. This was essentially a supply shock. It was always a supply shock. That's what drove prices up. It was never really a comprehensive price shock. It was always quite limited in its scope. As soon as those effects wore off, prices stabilized, inflation uh, fell, and we're back to where we started. And really, the entire drama around the central bank is a storm in a teacup. It's irrelevant to what's going on here. And I think that's where all of the new research needs to be done. We, we actually need to be able to figure out this difference. We need to understand far better how price shocks do work and how they might, for instance, amongst other things, unleash price gouging behavior in which firms either for fear of getting left behind by price changes or exploiting the opportunities to make price changes do so in the course of processes like this. And on the other hand, if we actually do want to insist that central bank policy did the work here, we need some better causal mechanisms than the ones we've got. Because faced with the kind of inflation shock that we saw, it's just not entirely obvious, or rather faced with the kind of price shock that we saw that was concentrated in a limited number of goods. It's just not all that obvious how this interest rate increase, which has undoubtedly happened, really serve to bring this inflation back down again. The argument will be by uh, notions of expectation, perhaps. There's some evidence of demand repression. Um, the worst case is we haven't actually seen the full effects of the interest rate increase yet, and we may yet get a harder landing than we currently reckon with. But it's in making sense of these range of choices, I think, that you know this is where the new research needs to be done. This is what we need to be thinking about going forward. I find it unpersuasive. You know, I find the positions that say, oh, well, you know, conventional wisdom was confirmed by this event. That's the one position which I find really quite puzzling in light of the historically unique nature of this shock. I, I think it's a range of possible ways of interpreting this, including a delayed but ultimately effective central bank policy as one possible option, but one that didn't in the end require large increases on un unemployment, which is quite surprising. You could say that's to do with the fact the policy is super credible. That wasn't the line of the skeptics during the course of the crisis. So maybe it's more robustly credible than we thought. And that's why an interest rate increase can happen without unemployment going up. Wasn't the experience of the 80s. There's a lot to unpick here. But yes, Team Doom, the simple version, they lost this argument, I think. Got it. And just so I understand the outer edge of the team transitory argument that you mentioned, it it's that there wasn't really inflation at all? I mean, when you say it was just a supply... Well, there was was a, a system... Uh, uh, there wasn't general inflation at all. There was basically a concentrated series of price shocks in a limited number of sectors. Now, that's a stronger story for Europe than it is for the US, where by the later stages of the inflationary process, there was clearly general inflation going on of a relatively modest type. It's a relatively... It's one element in the bigger picture, but it's significant, no doubt. In Europe, the effects were always much more concentrated in sectors. And so far as you think of it in those terms, then yes, it wasn't really a comprehensive inflation, an adjustment of all prices, including wages, the price of labor, but really something much more partial. And again, the defenders of the status quo and, commons, uh, and the kind of conventional wisdom would say, and that's to the credit of central banks, which refuse to underwrite a general expansion. So this has been the year that AI, artificial intelligence, seems to have entered 
the public scene in a serious way. ChatGPT has obviously been introduced to the public in ways which set off a wider discussion about the future of AI in all of our lives. But I want to ask now at the conclusion of this year, should we be concluding that there was a bit of overhyping of AI at some uh, at some point this year. I mean, the conversations about artificial intelligence that I encountered at some conferences, they seem to veer into a kind of philosophical, almost kind of like eschatological territory. The questions of what will it mean for AI to take over all human functions? What will it mean when AI puts all people out of work? What will it mean to be human in those circumstances, etc.? I mean, but Still, at this point, it doesn't seem like it's making that kind of impact. And I wonder, what will it mean for AI to be kind of transformative in a more normal way? I mean, could this be the kind of technology that improves growth tra- trajectories without kind of fundamentally changing society? Or are those kind of two things inseparable in some way? I think it's a key question. And um, the New York Times bringing this important uh, lawsuit against the the major powers of artificial intelligence over the question of what goes into the large, um, you know, these giant language models and and the extent to which using New York Times content essentially gives the New York Times a claim on on the artificial intelligence that mechanisms that are generated seems to me to concentrate this question. One of the fascinating reposts online has been that the AI firms are so much more powerful and so much wealthier than any of the what so-called legacy media that they could simply um, swallow them and put an end to this legal difficulty. But I, for me, for me, it's actually a bit of a New Year's resolution for next year to to dive more deeply into the question of AI and and arrive at a more reasoned and serious judgment of my own. I know that when we did the episode, we got quite a lot of pushback and shall we say from some of our listeners, uh, which made me feel that we ought to, we ought to double down and get into this more seriously. So that's a, that's a new year's resolution for 2024 from my part. Um, If you do look at the economic estimates of what AI is going to do, I, I agree. There's a gap between you know, those those numbers and the kind of talk of a singularity and some sort of fundamental shift in humanity's relationship to technology and thus also to itself. I mean, the Goldman Sachs number is the one that's most widely cited. In fact, it's two numbers which don't I can't quite square in my head. Now, the more modest of the two is that they think it will add $7 trillion to global GDP over the next 10 years. Now, $7 trillion sounds like a, an awful lot of money, but when you place it in relation to global GDP, which is about $100 trillion, it's about 7% of current global GDP, which would we would expect to expand over time so that 10 years hence, it's substantially less. So it's that that would, I think, exactly conform to your kind of vision of solo-style economic, technologically-driven economic change. That would be a fairly modest number. The same report from Goldman Sachs also says it would raise labor productivity growth by 1.5% per annum, so as far as I understand that, that would pop labor productivity growth in the advanced economies from maybe 1.5% per annum to 3% per annum. If they mean that, then that's actually a really dramatic transformation. And over the course of 10 years would yield, one would expect, rather higher gains in terms of GDP per capita than the $7 trillion estimate. But it would still, I think, broadly speaking, fall within the solo model. And it's probably useful at this point to add from a historical perspective that 
our entire understanding of industrial revolution, so-called, tends towards the solo end of things. In other words, we don't actually think that the 19th century or even the 18th century industrial revolutions were kind of cataclysmic, world-changing events in the way that we might imagine from reading, you know, the romantic novelists of the early 19th century or Karl Marx, indeed. But it was, in fact, incremental change with rather large change in very small parts of the economy, slowly spreading to more moderate change in larger parts of the economy over time, all of which adds up to relatively modest, in absolute terms, changes in overall growth rates, which, however, if they are continued over ever larger societies over longer and longer periods of time, ultimately yield total transformation. So it's this sort of, this back and forth, this sort of rather oscillating kind of view that I think Solo and his growth thinking, actually in economic history as well, it served to, to really make our understanding of economic growth more robust, more realistic, less, you could say, less sentimental, also rather drier and more statistical and rather less romantic and exciting. But that may be indeed precisely the kind of corrective that we need when faced with the hype around AI. Okay, we are going to take a, a break right here, but we will be right back to talk about China this past year. So to shift topics and geographies a bit, I wanted to ask about China, which has also been a big economic story this year, namely for seeing slower growth rates as people talk about a potential economic crisis in China. And I wanted to ask whether China, because of these slower growth rates, whether it is no longer on pace to surpass the United States as the world's largest economy. There was a lot of talk about that in recent years. Is that no longer a realistic or likely possibility? And does that matter to begin with? If it does matter, how, how does it matter in the first place? I had a bit of an epiphany about this in the fall um, as a result of um, encountering Angus Deaton at Princeton and then who, who runs actually or chairs or oversees one of the UN committees that calculates purchasing power parity adjusted figures for global GDP, and then reading a piece by Chris Giles in the FT about the size of economies and how we should sensibly measure them. And it is true that if you take market exchange rates, so GDP multiplied by whatever the prevailing exchange rate happens to be on any given day, the US economy at $25.5 trillion is larger than that of China at $17.8 trillion. But this is, by any reasonable estimation, a really bad way of measuring GDP because it's subject to the violent and, many economists believe, essentially inexplicable movements of the exchange rate. In other words, the best model available for measuring how they move or for predicting how they move is some kind of random walk. And that's not a very satisfying way of thinking about large-scale international comparison. It's one way, it's just not a, it's on the face of it, evidently not a great way of doing it, because it means that China's GDP or America's GDP is subject to huge fluctuations depending on the exchange rate you use. If you do something which seems on the face of it more sensible, namely trying to create comparable baskets of goods and measuring their prices and doing the comparison that way, in other words, PPP comparison, well, then China overtook the United States already in 2016. And currently with a GDP of 30 trillion 
purchasing power parity adjusted dollars is 20% larger than the US at 25 trillion. So in that case, if you if you if we move away from what is essentially a silly way of measuring and use instead our best, no doubt flawed, but probably the only coherent way of making measurement, then China already did overtake the US. And if you're having kind of a moment of skepticism about that, and you're thinking, well, don't dollars matter in the end? And isn't purchasing power parity ultimately a matter of what kind of dollars you have in your pocket and so on? Think about it this way. If you're thinking about a big modern economy and you want to know how big it is, one obvious way of measuring whether it's bigger or smaller is how much energy it consumes. And the most fungible general purpose kind of energy that economies use is electricity, especially modern economies. Not true for more you know, basic economies, but any modern economy, as we all know, just looking around our apartments and houses, everything is driven by electricity in one way or another. So, you know, ponder this. China's total electricity consumption is twice that of the United States currently. So it would frankly be kind of mind-blowing if China's economy wasn't larger than that of the US. I mean, just on that basic metric, it's pretty clear. And you could say, well, China's got more heavy industry and so on and so forth. But I mean, you're basically kind of trying to wheedle out, I think, of the inescapable conclusion that as a physical productive system, China's economy at this point is not just a little bit bigger, but really very substantially larger than that of the United States. It's unsurprising because it sustains 1.4 billion people at a very considerable standard of living in the richest past right now, and the majority of them at a moderate standard of living. And that's an awful lot more people than live in the US, obviously. So, you know, I think we should maybe kind of just give up on this question. It's a city, I think at some level, this kind of waiting for China to overtake misses the point. And it misses the point that what really will matter for power as well is technological capacity, physical production, capacity to satisfy basic needs of the population. And on all of those metrics, really, China's aggregate effort and capacity is clearly at this point larger than the US. Got it. And yet at the same time, maybe it doesn't matter as much as we, we, we like to think. There's sort of a juvenile aspect to this kind of measure. Oh, it may matter uh, a great uh, deal. I mean, in terms of, say, the energy transition and the climate problem, America's an afterthought by comparison with China's decisions, right? And ultimately, with regard to productive capacity, it may turn out also to be that China is already well ahead. And so many of the technologies of the energy transition, the you know, the huffing and puffing and the brouhaha about America's choices is is really at some level anachronistic because the driving force of change is in China. Finally, uh, this year has also been marked by wars of various kinds. You know, obviously there is the ongoing war in Gaza, but there's also an ongoing war in Ukraine, uh, one that's been happening for several years. And in thinking about that latter war, it strikes me that Russia has really shown how its advantage as an economic power can be translated into destructive force for long stretches of time in ways that seem not necessarily to put the country in discomfort. And I wanted to ask you about what we've learned about being the smaller party, the smaller economic party in such a conflict. Are the smaller parties always inevitably dependent on outside assistance to maintain any hope of a more normal future? Is that a really inherently a disadvantaged position to be in in such a conflict? And how does all that affect military planning, military ideology, and just yeah, economic and political prospects for the future? I, mean, I think this is a fascinating question. 
you know, we've on the pod we've been we've I've been very vocal about the need to separate the struggle in Ukraine from from the, the spectacularly unequal exercise and destruction going on in Gaza. I, I think it's not helpful to think of them as the same sort of battle. What's really striking in in the Ukraine conflict, which is in some senses a relatively classic large scale great power war. Is, is not just the question of underlying structures, but but how they're being mobilized. And I think that's going to come ever more to the fore because neither Ukraine nor Russia are fighting this war at full tilt, not by World War II standards, not even Ukraine, certainly not Russia, which is spending 6 to 7% of GDP on its war effort. This is Vietnam level of effort. So the crucial thing really is the bits of the economy that matter for the war most, which is the military industrial complex, how quickly can you mobilize them? And then it's questions, if you like, of the underlying structure of these societies and how that is then reflected in the rather specific mobilization capacity of their military industrial sectors. And there's a really stark difference here. And I have to say that since I've seen these numbers, I've it's forced me to somewhat reevaluate my outlook on the on the Ukraine, uh, the war in Ukraine, because there was this interview given by a senior Estonian defense ministry official to, I think, the New York Times in the fall, which I only came across a, maybe a month or so ago, but it's not really left my mind since. And he says that he estimates that Russia's current ammunition production is seven times greater than that of the West. And uh, Russia's production costs for ammunition are... Uh, basically one tenth of those in the West. So he quoted five to six thousand dollars to make a one single hundred and fifty-five millimeter artillery round in the West. Now that's a bonkers number, but given the bloated natures of military industrial complexes in the West, nothing is impossible. God knows, maybe they use super high, you know, quality alloys or something in these expendable pieces of ammunition. Whereas in Russia, it costs $600 to produce a comparable shell, which seems like a kind of sensible number. That's kind of what you'd expect to spend on, you know, a really big um, shell that you're going to fire at um, the enemy. And it's one way. And if those kind of numbers are correct, then, then kind of all bets are off, really, because in the one of the absolutely crucial dimensions of the war effort, which is central to this particular conflict, whatever the underlying parameters of size of economies and so on and so forth, Russia is just operating in dimensions that are the pace and on a scale that much, much, much richer, much more sophisticated societies in the West backing Ukraine are failing to, to match. And that will in the end be all that matters. Now, you know, this is just one dimension of the military industrial competition. There's also drones and all that stuff, which the Ukrainians are so proud of. But we also know the drones situation has shifted as the Russians have brought new capacity online and have tapped the Iranian talent. And so my sense about what we've learned of the last 18 months initially was a kind of humbling realization that macroeconomics didn't tell us very much about the resilience of Ukraine, which was far more resilient than the macroeconomic numbers would suggest. And now, in a sense, you could say we may be learning something similar about Russia, which is that that it certainly isn't proving vulnerable to the sort of economic pressure the West is willing to apply, which is anything but all out, but it's not enough to even slow the Russian economy down very much right now. And in this key sector, which really matters for the war, namely the mass production of expendable munitions, we don't even seem to be in the same league as the Russians. And if these numbers are true, I'd love to hear if they weren't, but like if, they, if these numbers are true, then there's a huge problem here going forward, right? Because this allows the Russians to build up massive artillery Stocks which they can then use either in defensive fire against any Ukrainian uh, offensives or more likely at this point at attritional and grinding efforts to wear what's left of the Ukrainian army down. 
So I think we've it's been a humbling kind of lesson. In it goes back to your original framing, like what is big and what is small, what is large and you know what is rich and what is poor, what is productive and what not. And the notably the Ukraine Russia conflict has really taught us an awful lot about. Um, well, it's reminded us, these are things we used to know when we looked at the war economies of World War II. It's reminded us of the need to understand these specific supply chains and their significance. Well, that's about all we can cover today in wrapping up the year. But thanks to all our listeners for sticking with us this year. And obviously, we'll have many uh, more topics in the weeks and months ahead. So yeah, looking forward to it. Happy New Year to all. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code Twos at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.